The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings, the gospel, a basic truth. Uh, We're looking in this series at where to find the gospel message in Scripture other than John 3.16. And today we're going to look at Luke, the gospel of Luke. And our key memory verse today is Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The gospel of Luke is very unique. It's the only book in the Bible that is written by a Gentile. He actually writes two books, but they're a matched pair. Acts of the Apostles is really the second half of the Gospel of Luke. It just happens to be separated by the Gospel of John, but Luke wrote both of them together, and they were to be read together. The early church fathers all agreed that the Gospel of Luke was written by a Gentile, a Greek, Luke, and that he was a physician. We see in the book of Acts, the second volume, The author Luke, the first 15 chapters are written in the third person plural. The author Luke says, they, referring to Paul and Silas and the mission team, they went here, they did that. That changes when we get to chapter 16 in Acts. There we see the author Luke saying, we, we've got the first person plural pronoun, and he uses that for the rest of the book. We know as we read the letters of Paul that uh, Luke is mentioned by name, and Paul refers to him at one point as the dear and glorious physician. He was a doctor. And it it seems that Luke stayed with Paul, and this would have been from chapter 16 in Acts, beginning of the second missionary journey, all the way through the end of the second imprisonment when Paul was martyred. Luke is a Gentile, he is a Greek, he is a physician, and the, the Greek in which he writes both the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts is excellent Greek, excellent grammar. So he was a well-educated man. The Gospel of Luke, like uh, all of the early books, would have been written in a scroll form. And so as he would write, they would simply add additional sheets onto the side. And eventually you'd have this very, very long horizontal piece of paper. And of course, uh, when he was finished, they would start with the last page and roll it. And so the, once the Gospel of Luke would be rolled up, the final piece of paper that would be on the top would be actually the first page. Now, what they would do at that point is they would fold over that first page and then, you know, tie a rope on either end. So you've got a scroll. It's sitting in the library. Well, how do you know what's in the scroll? Well, because the first page is folded over, you can just look through the stack of scrolls and then just read what the first page says. And that gives you an idea of what's in the book. So now we're going to go ahead and we're going to read uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. And this is what would have been visible if it was in a library. This is Luke speaking now. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, 
just as those who from the beginning were eyewitness, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have also delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke starts out and says, and now he's referring, of course, to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, Inasmuch as, you know, a lot of people have tried to compile uh, uh, this, this ministry, this story, um, and, and we, we who have done that report to you what was given to us from the eyewitnesses and the ministers who actually were there with Jesus, and they were delivered to us. So we got it from the eyewitnesses. And he says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, we believe that Paul wrote, excuse me, that Luke wrote his gospel is published probably in the 60s AD. And so he is talking about at least uh, for the last 10 years or so, he, he has been following these things. It certainly appears that uh, he has read the narratives, probably the gospel of Mark that was written before. He had that available to him, and we certainly see that much was borrowed from Mark. He also appear, appears to have interviewed the witnesses. Now, when would he have done that? All right, let's go back to Acts. So Luke, Dr. Luke, is with Paul and Silas through the third missionary journey. They end up in Jerusalem. And Paul is taken, he's arrested and taken into custody. And because he's a Roman citizen, he spends about two years in prison up in Caesarea, which is up along the coast of the Mediterranean, way up north. So Luke was with him for those two years, but not in the prison. So he had time, and it certainly seems that he then went and interviewed the surviving eyewitnesses. So this would have been almost 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Now, what is absolutely clear to all scholars is that one of the eyewitnesses that Luke interviewed was Mother Mary. And the things that she gives Luke are extremely personal and, and very uh, things that she had pondered and thought about for a long time. And she felt very comfortable to give him those. Uh, and, and that's what we have so many of the wonderful things about Mary is because Luke actually interviewed her. And at that time, in the early 50s, she was, if not 70, pretty close. Um, if you notice, up until that time, for 20 years, she really is not mentioned in the church. She's not a leader. You know, obviously Jesus' mother, that's important, but takes no kind of leadership role. It's only when Luke interviews her that all of these things come out that, that, that we see. Now, some people think, back to the first four verses, that this name, Theophilus, which in Greek just means lover of God, is not a person, but a reference to all people who love God, and all Christians perhaps. But most scholars today say, no, there actually was a Theophilus, and, and we're fairly comfortable with that because how Luke writes these four verses is very similar to how all Greeks wrote. They would give in that opening statement, they would thank their patron, the person who paid to get the book copied. And so that's who he's writing to and saying, thank you. 
Now, Luke writes for two reasons. The first purpose in writing this book is he wants to confirm the faith of Theophilus. He wants to confirm that this man's faith in Jesus Christ rests on real historical facts. And so he's saying, look, I've checked it out. I've interviewed the witnesses. This is how it happened. It it was real. So the things you were taught, they are true. So your faith is good. Now, the second purpose, and this gets huge. Luke is writing to Gentiles. That's everybody outside of Israel. And he wants to present Jesus as the Son of Man and what that means to say that this Jesus was rejected by Israel, but Jesus is now available to Gentiles. Gentiles everywhere could know the program for the kingdom of God and and how to attain salvation. Luke wants every Gentile to know that, that they have a place in God's kingdom. So very, very large. Uh, we've got a large audience here. Now, again, we need to compare and contrast. Um, once again, I'm going to go back and look at the book of Matthew. As we know, Matthew was writing to Jews, and an important aspect in writing to say that Jesus of Nazareth met all of the, the prophecies in, in, in Scripture about the Messiah, he had to show that Jesus was the legal descendant of David. And so there's a uh, genealogy in Matthew. Interesting, it goes through his stepfather, Joseph, though. Now you might think, well, why is that important? Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Joseph was Jesus' legal father. Now, there's, there's a reason here what we say legal father. There is a presumption in the law in every state, in every country, in every nation going back to all of recorded history. A baby's father, legal father, is whoever the baby's mother was married to at the time the baby was born. We know that Joseph took Mary to be his wife before Jesus was born. And so, by law, he is the legal father. Now, even today... You could go to a court of law and say, look, I've got blood tests, I've got DNA, this is not my child, and the judge will laugh at you because the judge says, I don't care. The strongest presumption we have is that you were married to the mother when the baby was born. You can never break that tie that you are the legal father. Therefore, Jesus has the legal title to the throne of David. Okay, because that is his legal father, and he is the firstborn, so to speak. Now, compare that with Luke. It's not important for Luke to show that Jesus descended from David, although he did. Luke takes genealogy, and he goes through the mother, Mary, and he goes all the way back to show that she's descended from Adam and Eve, just like we are, just like all people are. So, For Luke, he is saying, look, this is important because we're all related to Jesus, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Luke is uh, an interesting gospel in that I'm going to kind of use a hyperbole, an exaggeration here. In some ways, Luke is the woke gospel, all right? An exaggeration. But 
Luke is very concerned about diversity and inclusion. He's very concerned about the place of the disenfranchised. And he's very, very concerned about the place of women. We take a look at how he starts out, and we get two stories that are really very, very similar. Okay, we have two people who are visited by the angel Gabriel. One is an older priest who should know better, and that was Zechariah. And the angel Gabriel says, you know, your wife's going to conceive and you're going to have this son and it's going to be, of course, the forerunner of the Christ, and that was John the Baptist. And this older man, this priest who knows better, doubted. The next story, the next faith story we have is that of Mary. Almost identical facts, but this this ends different because although Zacharias is an older man who knows better, Mary is probably 15, maybe 16 max. She gets a visit from Gabriel and says, you are going to have the Messiah and it's going to be virgin born. And she believes. So you have two faith stories, one who doubts and one who believes. So Luke, right out of the barrel, is showing how important women are and compares and contrasts the faith of, of a woman as opposed to the man. I'm going to go out of order here just a little bit, but to show again how inclusive and how much this is focused on Gentiles, after baby Jesus is born, the mother and father go to the temple to dedicate baby Jesus, and there are two people there, a man and a woman, both of who come in at different times and and understand that this is the Messiah. Now, the man, Simeon, was told through the Holy Spirit by God that he would see the Messiah before he died. So he's an older man, very, very elderly man. He's in the temple. The Holy Spirit says, hey, go over there, go over there. And so he walks over and there's this couple with a baby and the Holy Spirit says, you have now seen the Messiah. And so he picks the child up and he gives this blessing. And he says, this child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of Israel. So again, Luke is showing, just from the very beginning, before anything happens in the ministry, it was always the intention that the Messiah would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, along with the Jews, the glory of Israel. Let's now take a look at the key verse again. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As we said last time, the Son of Man is just not a term that the author made up or that Jesus suddenly decided to use in his ministry. This is what we call a messianic title. So this title is first mentioned about 600 years before Christ. We find it in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And Daniel is, over a period of perhaps 60 years, is given four visions about end times and how that's going to work out and actually... um, what's going to happen between now and end times. Chapter 7 is the first vision that Daniel gets. And there's all of these earthly kingdoms that rise and fall. And then finally, there is the end of time where there's going to be final judgment. And it says he sees the ancient of days being seated, and they're going to judge the nations. They're going to judge all people, living and dead. And then there's the... The imagery is 
one like a son of man coming with the clouds comes down and is presented to the ancient of days. The ancient of days, so this is God the Father, gives to this son of man all honor, all glory, all authority, and gives him a kingdom that lasts for eternity and that all people worship this son of man. So son of man indicate he is man, yet clearly as we read the vision, this is also God. So back to 1910, for this son of man, who's fully God, fully man, one person with two natures, who's going to receive the final kingdom and rule eternity, he came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we're going to go through a, a, some stories here that, Jesus, or that Luke gives us about Jesus to show just exactly what he means, to, see, to seek and to save the lost. Now, the first group we're going to look at are the shepherds. Now, in a previous episode, I went on to show how the announcement of the shepherds is actually the gospel message. I won't go through that part, but I want to talk a little bit about who shepherds were in that society. So I will read the famous, you know, every Christmas we read this. And in chapter two, by the way, of Luke, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we have talked about the gospel here, but the point today is, who is Jesus seeking to save? He wants to shave shepherds. Of all the people that the angels could have announced to in that country, they go to the absolute lowest class in society. Now we think of, oh, the Lord is my shepherd. We think of David as a shepherd boy. So we have some you know, kind of romantic thoughts about shepherds. Well, they weren't romantic thoughts 2,000 years ago. Shepherds were considered just the lowest in society. They were dirty physically. They were dirty ceremonially. They were unclean. They could not participate in synagogue or temple worship. They, they were not considered honest or reliable people. A shepherd could not give testimony in a court of law because they were considered to be liars. Yet it is the shepherds that the angels came. Notice, again, we're in Luke. For unto you this day is born in the city of David, all right, a Savior. And it will be for all the people. Of course, in this case, he's referring to not just all the Jews, but to Gentiles as well. But very specifically, the angels are telling the shepherds, yeah, you're the lowest in society, and this Savior has come for you. So the lowest class, the unclean class, that is who Jesus came to seek and to save. Now, I said that Luke was very concerned about the place of women, and certainly we saw the two stories, the two faith stories, Zachariah, who didn't believe, whereas the young woman who did. We're going to look at another story to help point out the importance of women and how Luke is 
making them equal with all the men. There's uh, this cute little story, and it's in Luke 10. And over the years, I've been in community groups and small groups, and so they'll have discussion questions. And typically, the story of Mary and Martha every few years will come up, and one of the discussion questions will be, well, who are you more like? Are you more like Mary, or are you more like Martha? All right, so you probably remember this story. I'm going to give you a little background. Mary and Martha are sisters. Martha is the oldest. That's pretty clear as we study other parts of John. Mary is the one who's in charge. She's got the business sense. She works hard. She's sensible. She's kind of a thought person. Mary is the younger one. She tends to be more emotional and uh, more impulsive. And then there is the, uh, the brother, Lazarus. So in Luke 10, it says Jesus and his disciples are staying at their house. <laughs> well, this sort of sounds like, oh yeah, we know, we know the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and so we're just going to knock on the door and see if we can stay. That's not what's happening here, folks. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus have a very lucrative business. These are wealthy people, okay? They live in a little village called Bethany. It's about two miles outside of Jerusalem. So in the law of Moses, there are three feasts every year, high holy days, and three times a year, Jewish men are expected under the law of Moses, they're directed, commanded to come and worship and honor God at the temple for those three festivals, holy days. And so it doesn't matter where you are. You're supposed to travel to the temple. Oftentimes, of course, you bring your, your, you know, you bring your family with you and just kind of, a, kind of a camp out. People from all over the Mediterranean, wherever they lived, were expected to come. Hundreds and thousands of people would come for the festival. Some historians say that it may have got up to nearly a million people would show up. Now, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, and I have, it is a small city. So to, just within the last few years, we've went there a couple times, and each time we would walk the wall. So you can walk on the top of the wall. You can do it in 45 minutes. And the city is bigger than it was in the time of Jesus. I'm just saying that because it's a small city. You, you can't house people, hundreds of thousands of people, in a small little city. Where are they going to stay? Well, it's not like they can camp out, and there's not like there's a lot of, you know, fast food places. So, here's where the hospitality industry comes in. The people in the villages within about a five-mile radius of Jerusalem, they all opened up bed and breakfast. Okay, that, that was their entire job. So, they, they would take care of pilgrims. Pilgrims would show up. That you would go to that bed and breakfast, you'd stay there, you get up in the morning, you get breakfast, they give you a happy meal that you can take in to Jerusalem during the day, and then the pilgrims by dusk would walk back to the village where the bed and breakfast was, and they would get dinner and they would repeat. Again, it was a very lucrative business, and, and that's what these people did. So, Jesus and the disciples are there at this bed and breakfast. It's clear that they although they were from Galilee. Now, the people from Galilee had a very funny accent. You know, it's sort of like you, you hear people who grew up in the Deep South. 
They have a funny accent. Now, they will say the same about me. I got that. These Galileans, these northerners, would come down to these southerners, and they would stay at this particular bed and breakfast every time. So Jesus is there, and it says he's seated, and he's teaching. That's important. A Jewish rabbi at that time doesn't teach standing up. He would sit down. And those who want to listen to be students would sit in front of him, right? They would sit down on the ground. All right, so that is background. Now, so now we get into the story. So Martha is busy trying to get food for all of her guests. I'm sure she's got to make beds and all these things going on. And Mary, whose job is to help her, obviously, is in the room where Jesus is, and she's seated at his feet listening to him teach. Well, Martha gets a little exasperated, and she goes to Jesus, and she said, make my sister help me. I got a lot to do. And Jesus, of course, says, Martha, Martha, you're all worried about getting all these things done. And, and, but listening to me is more important, and, and Mary has chosen the better thing. All right, who are you like, Mary or Martha? But there's an aspect of this story that we, in the 21st century Western world, really don't get. Luke, though, really flashes, if, if you know their culture, Mary should not have been sitting in the room at Jesus' feet. Only men did. And Jesus saying, no, it is okay. Women are of equal status to be here. And, and that is the rest of his ministry. We always see there were women amongst the disciples that followed Jesus, not, not just the twelve. So Mary is accepted there, yeah, just like any of the men as a disciple. Now, I will tell you, all three of the brothers, or the two sisters and the brother, I believe the three of them were saved. I think Martha gives an incredible testimony in the Gospel of John, and one day I will do just one podcast episode on those three. Uh, (laughs) Amazing people. So Luke, once again, is showing the importance of women, and I think that is the aspect of the story that our culture tends to miss. The second story here, and again, we're talking about this verse, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to seek the lowest, most unclean segment of society, the shepherds. Once again, he came to seek women on the same basis as men. Now, this next story is in chapter 7. There is a, uh, a guy, and we know his name. He's a Pharisee, and his name is Simon. I'll come back to that at the end. And Simon invites Jesus to his house to dine. Now, friends, we're going to get cross-cultural here real quick because there's stuff going on here that is hard for us to grasp. Um, so Jesus goes, now... You and I, when we have dinner, we sit in a chair at a table. I've worked with people from all over the world, international students, and um, I have two Indian sons. I'll tell you, when you go to the home or just even the the dorm room for an Indian student, you're going to eat? Yeah. They put newspaper on the floor, and you sit on the floor and eat with your fingers, all right? Different people do things differently. Here in the Middle East, and this was true in the Roman Empire, you didn't sit in chairs, you didn't sit on the floor, 
you reclined on the floor on a pallet. The food was put in the middle, and all of the guests went around in a circle as you reclined around the circle. Um, very different. I cannot imagine eating while I'm lying down. It just doesn't seem right. But Now, the other odd thing. A wealthy man would put on a big dinner, and he would open his home to the poor. Not to eat, but to watch. So the poor could come in, and you could sit along the outer wall and watch the host and the guest eating. You didn't get any food, but you could come and watch. What's with that, huh? Now, of course, what they were hoping for is that after dinner, there would be some food left. And then the poor would, after all the guests and everybody had gone, would, would go in and eat up whatever the leftovers were. You know, refrigerators weren't working back then. So that's what's going on. Jesus is reclining at table, and there is a woman who is kissing his feet. Okay, that's a little odd for us. Okay. And this guy, Simon, he's the host, and he sees it, and he's like, okay. I was thinking maybe this Jesus guy was a prophet, but if he was a prophet, he would know that this woman is a prostitute, okay? An immoral, sinfully immoral person. And for a prophet to allow, uh, like a prostitute to touch him, he would be ceremonially unclean. So because Jesus is allowing this, he can't possibly know who she is. Now, Jesus, of course, knows what everybody thinks. He knows exactly what Simon's thinking. So he asks him a question to the effect of, you know, who loves more, the one who is forgiven more or the one who is forgiven little? Simon responds. Jesus uses that. And there's this conversation. And we'll come back to conversations in general. And meanwhile, this woman, she begins to cry. She's weeping. I mean, she's just buckets of tears. And, 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 and she's washing his feet with her tears. And then she realizes the feet are wet, so she undoes her hair and she wipes his feet. And Jesus says to Simon, you know, the, in our culture, when you come to somebody's house, you kiss them on each cheek. They still do that in the Middle East, by the way. Okay, you didn't do that. Um, it's custom in our culture that when you come to somebody's house that a servant or, or someone will wash your feet. And you didn't do that either. But look at this woman. She has not stopped kissing my feet since I've been here. And she has washed my feet with her tears. Now Jesus knows exactly who this woman is. It's clear he, he has already had some interaction with her somewhere else, some other time. And then he gets up. He stands her up, and he tells her her sins are forgiven. Jesus came to seek and to save the morally sinful people. And he does something else, and it, it goes by really fast. Do you see what he did? He could have told her in private her sins were forgiven, but he doesn't. He does it publicly. So he publicly restores this woman to society. Everybody in town knew she was a hoe. But essentially, what they all thought was a prophet is saying, no, God has forgiven her. She is restored. Okay, you must now treat her that way. Jesus came for the, the morally sinful people and to restore them to society. 
The next story is found in um, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. It's the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. He is very, very short in stature. Jesus comes to town, and there's a crowd lining the road, and Zacchaeus is short, so he can't see anything. It's sort of like going to the Rose Bowl parade. If you get there late, (laughs) you know, you're about six rows behind, and you never get to see anything. So Zacchaeus, being the smart guy that he was, runs ahead, climbs up in a sycamore tree because he wants to get a look at Jesus as he goes you know, down the road under the tree. Now Jesus, who knows everything, walks under the tree, looks up and goes, Zacchaeus, you come down. If you have children or grandchildren that have gone to Sunday school, you know that story. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to stay at your house tonight. And Zacchaeus is just overjoyed, and he invites his friends. Well, here's a problem. The word tax collector is never mentioned in a sentence without also the word sinner. Tax collectors and sinners, there's like an equal sign between them. I don't think Zacchaeus was a morally sinful person, not at all. But what is clear is he is corrupt, lying, thieving person. Very cold, very cold. His sins are very different. Greed. As he's talking with Jesus, he obviously is convicted, and he says he will give away half of his wealth. And to anyone that he's improperly taken money from, he will give and restore it four times over. Again, unless we know our Old Testament, to restore something that you have taken four times, that, that is for like really sinful, defrauding people. So he is admitting that he, he is, as a tax collector treasurer, busy, busy cheating people out of money, knowing what he's doing. You know, um, morally sinful people, yeah, it's bad, but I realize people get into that for all kinds of reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes because they have to to survive, and sometimes it's because of their their lust and their passions. But I'll tell you, what really gets me is these corrupt, greedy people who, in cold blood, cheat you out of money. Uh, our first church, we'd uh, been married ten years when we got saved, and, and we were at our first church for nine years, and. There were some men in the church, and uh, some of them were elders and deacons, that kind of stuff. And it became clear that some of the, that were in business for themselves, it became very clear that they, they cheated their customers. They lied. They cheated. They stole. I know. With, I, I know. They lied under oath, bribed public officials. So angry with that. And I've dealt with that for a long time, you know. How, how dare you? Okay? But here's the deal. Jesus came to save, seek and to save Zacchaeus. And those older men in my church who did cheat their customers, who did bribe public officials, and I know they did, because I talked to the public official who turned down the bribe. Others did not. Jesus came for those too. I'm like, what? But he did. 
We go to the next and back to chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Jesus came for Gentiles. So there is this Roman centurion, and he's a Roman, apparently decent guy. And in this town, the people who were in charge of the synagogue came to Jesus and said, hey, look, the centurion has heard of you. He has a, a servant who, who's very value, valued and important to him, and he likes it. And he is asked if, if you would heal the servant. And Jesus, you got to do this for us. This guy is so good to us. You know, a lot of Roman officials aren't, but this guy's been good to us. He even helped us build the synagogue, okay? So please. Well, now the story's told two different versions here, but in Luke, the centurion sends uh, someone to Jesus and says, well, Jesus agrees, of course, to go to go see the centurion. But before he gets there, word comes to Jesus from the centurion, and he says, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I am a man under authority, and I have men under my authority. To one I say, go, he goes. To another I say, come, and he comes. And Jesus is blown away. He says the word, and of course the servant is healed. He turns to his disciples, and Jesus says, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. In other words, there isn't anybody here that has as much faith as this Gentile, this Roman who is oppressing us, has admitted, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe you have authority to do this. So all you have to do is say the word, I understand authority, and I know it when I see it. I believe in you. Jesus came to seek and to save the Gentiles, even those that are our oppressors. There's one more group here, and this also is in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17. Now, the shepherds were unclean, and they were the lowest class. I want to make a difference in this class, this group. This is the absolute, abject, poor, the underprivileged who have nothing. This is who Jesus came to save and seeking to save. Jesus and his disciples are walking by the village of Nain, and they come across the funeral procession. And what's clear is this young man has died. His mother, who was an elderly widow, is there besides the, you know, they're carrying the body out to bury. And Jesus has got it. His, his heart just goes out to this woman because she's a widow, and no husband to support her. There are no other children. Her, her only means of financial support was this son, and he has now died. She has no Social Security. She has no Medicare. Okay? There's no Meals on Wheels. There's no welfare department. There's nothing. This woman is facing not just poverty, but starvation. And Jesus' heart goes out to her. And so 
he stops the funeral procession and he, he raises the young man back okay, to life and gives him to the mother. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to restore us, to restore what has been taken. Uh, I won't go through them all, but you know, chapter 15 of Luke, they've got three parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep. One is lost. The shepherd puts 99 in a safe place and goes out to find the one lost sheep. The woman loses a coin in her house, so she cleans the house top to bottom to find it. And the third story, of course, is the parable of the lost son. The son who leaves his father, takes the money, and goes and squanders the money somewhere else. Every day the father walks to the end of the road and looks, waiting, waiting for the lost son to come home. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Um, the, these are incredible stories that Luke lays out to us. I'm going to come back to some of these just a bit at the end, all right? Now, in Matthew and Mark, I talked about answering the question, what must I do to be saved? And Luke does that too. This is in Luke chapter 9. And Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He says to all of them, you want to be saved? You want to come after me and be saved? You need to deny yourself. In other words, don't think about your own good. Every day, you need to agree with what I tell you, these words, and follow me even if it means to death. So again, three Gospels have the same basic facts and information. Then they all answer the question, what must I do to be saved? But each does it in a little different way. We get to the end of Luke. Uh, and of course, you know the story. The two men are walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, in resurrected form, appears to them. And eventually he opens their eyes and they realize they've seen the resurrected Christ and they hurry back to Jerusalem. And shortly after that, we get to the last, the, the end, chapter 24, the end of the book, and Jesus appears to his disciples one more time. So this is in ch uh, chapter 24, starting verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their eyes, their minds, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. So thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and die for the sins of the world, even though he was sinless, and rise on the third day to show that he had conquered sin and death and had paid for those sins. And that the gospel, which is calling for repentance and forgiveness of sins, 
for those who proclaim that they are sinners and they are in need of salvation and that Christ did die for them, that this message would be preached to all nations beginning here in Jerusalem. And so Jesus ends, and that's then we have the last ascension of Jesus. Now also, last couple times as we've been talking about the three Gospels, I've said, even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, have a lot of the same material, sometimes word for word, each presents the teachings of Jesus in a different way. Now, I've said before, the classic ways of teaching, or as the smart kids say today, modalities of teaching. Traditionally, there were three, and I understand in the last few decades, people have invented some more. Or not, I don't know. Don't know about that. But the three classic ways that teaching is done, and the, we saw in Matthew, Matthew uses the formal, where the teacher or, or preacher gets up and just teaches, just talks, and you listen. And that is often called didactic teaching, and that is what Jesus does in Matthew. Jesus gives these five, like, super long sermons. And you really got to sit down and with your pencil to, and, and your study Bible to, to kind of really follow along. Mark, we said, uses what is called a kinetic or experiential model. He does life with the disciples and they learn as they go. So they will have some, something will happen, and then they'll get through the story, and then Jesus will go, well, grasshopper, do you understand what you just did? And we use the example of um, teaching, what must I do to get saved? And he uses the, the little children, and then the rich man that comes up to, to teach by these examples, okay, living life. And we said, this is familiar to all of us. I mean, uh, this is how you learn to play an instrument. This is how you learn to play sports. This is how you learn to cook, to drive a car, to fly an airplane. You learn by doing. Now, Luke presents the third way. This is called dialectic or informal. And we see that predominantly in chapters 9 through 19. Now, Luke is the longest of the Gospels, and he does have some, you know, formal didactic teaching. I mean, he's got it all in his Gospel, but in chapters 9 through 19, he spends a lot of time with this dialectic teaching, this teaching by asking and answering questions. Remember the story of um, Simon and the prostitute? It starts out, they're at dinner, and Jesus is like, I have a question for you, Simon. We see that played over and over in Luke. Uh, one commentator just wrote this massive commentation, and you know that, that was like his big thing. That there's always things being taught at the dinner table, and it's a question and answer kind of format. Um, sometimes Jesus is sitting at a table. Sometimes he's walking a, along the road, and somebody comes up to speak to him, and there's these questions and answers back and forth. For those of you that uh, went to school at a certain time, you got to study the ancient Greeks and the ancient Greek philosophers. The uh, Socrates, the ancient philosopher, had two very famous pupils, one being Plato. And his famous pupils 
wrote what Socrates taught or how he taught and what he said. Socrates didn't leave us anything in writing in his own hand. But the, his famous pupils tell us that Socrates only taught by asking questions. And they said he could teach geometry by asking you questions. And I thought, well, that's pretty good. Maybe I would have learned calculus better if somebody were asking me questions. Now, where in our life can we kind of see that sort of a teaching? Well, have you ever sat on a jury? It doesn't matter whether it was a criminal or, or a civil case. You're the jury, and you're supposed to learn what happened, okay? And make a judgment on what the facts are. How does that go down? Each side has a lawyer, a representative, who brings in a witness of sorts. Could be an eyewitness, could be an expert witness. And the witness only speaks by answering questions. The lawyer says, well, what about this? And there's an answer. What about that? There's an answer. The other attorney gets up and asks countervailing questions. So you have this question and answer. During that process, if you're sitting in the jury, you hopefully get enough information through this question and answer that you can make a decision uh, about whether it's guilt or innocence or, or something to do with a civil case. So those are the three forms of teaching, and we see each different form uh, in the synoptic gospels, even though they're using the same material. So quite fascinating how that works out in Scripture. Now, I want to go back to Simon. Luke would have published this at about early 60s, maybe mid-late 60s A.D. He tells us in his opening four verses that he had been following and collecting this information for some time past. When would he have been able to do this stuff? Well, we know he joined Paul and Silas, and he was on the second and third missionary journeys with them. At the end, when Luke, excuse me, when Luke was with Paul in Jerusalem and Paul is put into captivity, that would have been in the early 50s, as we said, 51, 52. It looks like Luke stayed with Paul while Paul was in prison. Obviously, he didn't, wasn't in prison with him, but he traveled all over Israel and it was in that two years, it appears, that he interviewed the witnesses. So again, all this information is about 20 years after it happened. And again, Mother Mary at this time, almost 70, you realize she would have had, well, at least five of her seven children were still alive. How many grandchildren, great-grandchildren? How many other people did Luke talk to? What the scholars tell us is, when you see a name in, in the Bible, like you see Simon, Simon was probably saved. Why? So Luke is getting the information a good 20 years after it happened. The eyewitnesses are able to tell you who this Pharisee's name was 20 years after that happened. Why would he even remember? Because Simon was probably in the church and had gotten saved. We see over and over stories. Jesus eats with Pharisees. A lot of times there's no name. 
But when, when we do see a name, it's because the early church is calling out and say, yeah, yeah, Simon became one of us. This goes back to our key verse. Jesus came to seek and to save those who stand in moral judgment over the immoral people. Somehow during that dialectic conversation at the dinner table, somehow during that expression of love from the prostitute, the questions from Jesus, somehow at some point, Simon got it. Jesus came to seek and to save those who stand in moral judgment over immoral people. You know, I stand in moral judgment over some of those guys, Christian businessmen who took bribes and stole money. And that's not right. But Jesus came to seek and to save me. Friends, I don't know where you are. Jesus came to seek and to save you, whether you are the dreadful sinner or the one who simply stands in moral judgment over them and in this sin yourself. Jesus came to seek and save all of us. So I commend Luke to you. I commend these three incredible gospels who have the same information presented in three different ways but the message is always the same. All right, uh, let me pray with us now. Gracious Heavenly Father, I, I pray that, I should say, I thank you that you came to seek and to save all of us. Please touch hearts of people who hear this today to know that you are seeking to save them. Father, we thank you that you come wherever we are, whatever our learning style is, you, you have something special to say for us. Oh, Lord, you have shown us how deeply you care about us and how deeply you seek us. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.